0: Welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Chris, and I'm Cal. And the the band's back together uh, this week after a brief sojourn um, into movies that I have not had time to see with uh, Cal and Baby Clyde last week. Um, Two great episodes. uh, If people want to have a listen to the London Film Festival films and some uh, some takes on those, but now we are back with our regularly scheduled programming. today looking at the category of Best Original Story at the 4th Academy Awards, which covered um, late 1930 and early 1931. Uh, This was your pick. So why'd you go with this year and this category?
1: Well, we haven't done the 30s for a while. We haven't done any of the early years. Um, So I was kind of eager to get back to uh, that. Um, And we've never done Best Story or Best Original Story or... um, that category at all, um, which is discontinued. It only lasted up until 1956. So it was good to take that off the list. Um, I think we've only got assistant director and sound recording that we haven't done yet. Um, and we're not going to be doing sound recording, by the way, especially based on some of the films this week. Um, but yeah, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, we've pretty much done every category now. Um, I hadn't seen any of these films. They all looked interesting. We've got three doses of Jimmy Cagney. We've got Nancy Carroll, an early Howard Hawkes film. Um so this lineup had a lot of potential. I wasn't expecting it to be so downbeat overall. Like it's a pretty depressing lineup. Um you could definitely tell that the US is sort of in this midst of depression when these films are made. Uh, and and the quality of the lineup, I would say, is lacking a little bit, to be honest. I don't know how you feel about it, but I there are a couple of bright spots. But overall, it, it isn't a great lineup for me.
0: No, I, w- I would agree with that. And of course, we have... Uh, visited this year before uh, when we talked about the best picture lineup, and uh, similarly, kind of pretty lackluster uh, lineup. So maybe it's just a lack, maybe it's just a lackluster year overall. Um, but anyway, no, I had not seen any of these nominees myself, so it was kind of good to uh, have a category which is rare, um, where all five are new, um, at least in the narrative category. When we do documentary, that's usually a a full slate of clean uh, f- watches as well. Um, so the lineup for best original story this year was "The Doorway to Hell" by Roland Brown. Well, not really. It's it's hard to say by Roland Brown because he didn't exactly write it, but he wrote the story that it was based <laughs> on. It's a confusing category, and I'm I'm actually glad that they eventually came to their senses on it.
1: Well, also also it's not. They're not all original, are they? I mean, (laughs) like from what I could gather, like a good at least two of these are adapted from other things. So I don't really know what um why it's called original story, but yeah,
0: Yeah, no, I'm not sure either. But anyway, so uh, doorway to hell story by Roland Brown, laughter um based on a story I guess or story by. Henry Dabade Darast, Douglas Doty and Donald Ogden Stewart, The Public Enemy, uh, John Bright and Kubik Glasman, Smart Money, Lucian Hubbard and Joseph Jackson, and The Winner, The Dawn Patrol by John Monk Sanders. So, um, yeah, let's uh, dive into the Cagney right away then with The Doorway to Hell. Uh, this is a kind of, uh yeah, you call it, a pre code early gangster film. Um, James Cagney, I think, was very early in his career here, so it's a, he's in a supporting role. And the lead is Lou Ayers. Um, I'd never seen him in this kind of like uh, underworld kingpin kind of role. Uh, how did you find that? Because um, I think contemporary reviews also pointed out that he's pretty clean cut to uh, be playing this um this kind of hard-nosed gangster role but how did you make a make out of him
1: i thought he was quite bad to be honest um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, the performance um you know i think i I kind of liked the premise of it i like the idea that you've got this gangster who's you know not very old saying i've had enough of this business i'm going to go off um with my great love who's actually a Cheating on her, but never mind. Um, And just enjoy the rest of my time and my decades. And, you know, which is admirable. Um, But it's never that simple, is it? Um, But yeah, I... Lou is bad in the movie. I didn't really buy him as a gangster in the first place. I get that the film wants a gangster you can empathise with that's not too hard-edged. Because... the public enemy we're going to talk about later is completely the opposite direction Um, so I don't necessarily think it needed James Cagney in the lead role but it just needed somebody with a little bit more charisma Ayers is pretty wooden you know only 21 at this point and the acting chops are not quite there yet because I think he's a decent actor overall in terms of his career but definitely not in this film
0: yeah no i agree and i mean we do see him just the earlier this year 1930 he had the starring role in all quiet on the western front um which was i think more suited for him at that age where he's playing kind of a young naive soldier who's learning about life so yeah he definitely was too young to play a uh, a smooth-talking gangster who just takes over the underworld with his charm and charisma really uh, more so than other things and it is kind of interesting to see that it was like marketed with things like the picture gangland defied hollywood to make because it's not that bad it and it like it it, it does kind of show him as just kind of like you said kind of a sympathetic um, idealistic figure almost who's like treating the rackets as a business and not and trying to end the petty infighting and all that stuff so it's not exactly making gangland look bad not that it looked good before this but it's like it's not exactly you know the kind of horrifying experience or expose that that tagline kind of um Kind of implies, or the or the title, for that matter, implies.
1: Exactly. And apparently the UK title of the film was A Handful of Clouds, which sounds like some comedy, you know, romantic <laughs> comedy. Um, but apparently it's like a reference to the smoke that used to come out of a gun, the old guns, revolvers, when they were fired. Um, But, you know, the Doorway to Hell as a title feels very dramatic, very overwhelming, you know, for a film that, you're right, it, it just often takes a bit of a muted approach to drama, Luez probably would be better suited to laughter, you know, it's he, kind of like in a, in a society picture in this really, he's, you know, got no hard edges at all, um, but the film's quite talky, it's a lot of people talking in rooms and cogitating and you know, even when the police detective comes, you know, it's all very reasonable when he talks to the gangsters. It's, you know. Yeah. It's just like people wouldn't behave in that way. Um, it's all mouth and no action, basically. Whereas The Public Enemy later is completely different. It's a lot more upfront um, as a version of this type of genre movie. But but The Dollar Tell's okay. You know, it's not, It's not a bad movie. I just don't think it's particularly exciting or memorable. Um, It's been about a month since I saw it, but I can barely remember it, to be honest.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, well, if you ever need a refresher course, you can read the uh, ridiculously detailed Wikipedia plot summary. The person who wrote it decided (laughs) to just literally include like every beat and a few, and more than a few lines of dialogue, and a few editorial uh, questions and flourishes. Um, so it, it makes for an interesting read. Uh, if people don't have time to watch the doorway to hell, spend ten minutes reading this plot summary. It, it doesn't disappoint. Um, but anyway, yeah, I don't have. I have a feeling it's not going to be one that I would like recommend, or it's not going to be high on my list of pre code. Uh, gangster movies but it was yeah it was alright and it did feature some elements that kind of became um, I guess standard in the genre including like the you know the set pieces of the shootouts and things like that so um, it is it did have its place at the time but yeah looking back on it now it was terribly kind of uh a little too restrained I think to be effective as a as a gangster piece
1: yeah and I'm not sure it's aware it's coming across that way like the ending between um Lou and the detective um Pat is it it's supposed to be quite poignant you know but the the delivery of the dialogue is so lacking in in any clarity of emotion you've got unnaturally large gaps between when people respond which is strange um, which is a symptom of, it's definitely a symptom of um, films of this era I did like the very end, you know with, with where you've got the passage explaining the film's title because um, it was kind of an interesting way to end the film rather than just having him be pelted with bullets, you know it was a bit more poetic and eerie but you know, the film hadn't really done enough overall to drum up interest in the character or, you know, make us invest in what was going to happen to him. It just didn't have quite enough going for it as a movie to earn that sort of underlining of the point at the end, vaguely pretentious uh, final passage. So... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the ingredients were there, but it it just didn't really didn't really work for me and I didn't think it was particularly well directed by Archie Mayo who you know from this is really fond of the old silent film style technique of filling in the gaps of the plot visually and um, but you know we've got a lot of news articles which tell us what's going on and um, he has this really annoying habit of cutting off the scene before the actors finished the lines properly. I don't know if you noticed that there were like
0: I did. Yeah. That, that was bizarre.
1: Yeah. There's these really abrupt transitions. I don't know if it's something to do with it. Maybe using takes where something went wrong at the end of it or um, trying to uh, conserve film or something. I, I'm not completely sure because um, the sound recording always seems pretty complete, but the scene's, cut off before they come to a natural close which is just odd
0: yeah that was there, there's a few points like that where it seemed like the the film suddenly was in a hurry or they edited it like five seconds before they should have because that was yeah that was weird how it just fades out in the middle of a line of dialogue um, I mean yeah it was early sound technology so they were still getting the hang of it but that still should have been I would think something that could have been easily fixed or noticed in the edit, but I guess that's just me.
1: Well, it didn't happen in any of films we're talking about today. Uh, no. But then maybe this one was the lowest budget. It wouldn't surprise me if it was.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could say that.
1: I wanted to ask, why does James Cagney keep calling everyone "sweetheart" in this? Like, <laughs> I. I, I I wasn't sure if that was like supposed to be a quirk of the character, or if it, or is it like slang for the era or what?
0: I wasn't sure. Um, I thought it was just, I thought it was just a character quirk, um, but he he kind of just has that. Maybe they decided to give it a shot to see if it worked because he doesn't do that in the other movie season. Uh, this these nominees. Um, maybe they thought, oh, it's just a, it's the kid's second film. Let's let's give him a let's give him a tagline. Let's give him a little weird, uh, idiosyncratic thing. See if it sticks, but it didn't.
1: I mean, there's some really dodgy slang in these three gangster films, especially in Smart Money, actually, where you think you know you can't believe people talked like that. <laughs> you just think, what? What are they talking about? Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that was a little bit. That was a little bit of an odd one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe the most underwhelming prison breakout sequence of all time in this way. Like, <laughs> like how gullible was the prison guard? Like
0: <laughs> Yeah. He just Yeah, that was pretty ridiculous. And then just off camera, something happens and he just falls back. <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, Lou just climbs down the fire escape, sees a signal from his driver, and just runs down an alley, and that's it? Like, is the prison in the middle of the city, like the downtown area? But yeah, again, going back to the budget, like, all the sets look very setty, and it's like the budget wouldn't stretch for an action sequence, like, I don't know, punching the guard or something, so they had to just... (laughs) have it happen off screen. is very comical.
1: Yeah. A distinct lack of furniture as well. Like I'm pretty sure when he's in the, the police station, there's just like one desk, and nothing else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, just, I know it was the depression and everything. Maybe people were burning it for warmth <laughs> or something, but like, <laughs> and then at the end, there's just a bed <laughs> in that room. Yeah. No Art Direction nomination, so don't wait the hell.
0: Shocking. <laughs> we didn't even really talk about the story, I guess, but uh, not anything too amazing in terms of the story. It seemed pretty uh, pretty predictable, pretty... Uh...
1: I was surprised when the kid died. That was a, a bit out the blue, but then I guess it had to be something major for him to return to the racket. Um so so that kind of makes sense, but yeah, the story's nothing to write home about.
0: So we take a break from Cagney uh, and get some Carol and March in Laughter. Um, Nancy Carroll, Frederick March, and Frank Morgan, uh, who's always a always good for a laugh. Um, I guess we would we might call this an early romantic comedy. Um, more or less, I guess. Uh, it's supposed to be comedic, anyway. Um, but, yeah, basically telling the story of a young woman who married uh, an old rich man for his money and now is uh, upset that her life isn't more exciting, I guess, and uh, kind of looking for looking for excitement.
1: Yeah, I mean, if she's looking for excitement, she's picked the wrong husband in Frank Morgan, hasn't she? Yeah. Uh. Yeah, who's looking youngest I've ever seen him actually in this, which is is strange to see, um, but he's still too too old for her.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean he's probably the youngest I've ever seen him in a film. Um, obviously he's better better known for the Wizard of Oz, though we have seen him in the uh, Affairs of Cellini uh, in 1934, and here, yeah, he's um, you know. Uh, a strapping young 40 year old
1: so the movie opens with this guy writing a suicide note um and then nancy carroll shows up as peggy who's a gold digger let's be honest um and you know this artist guy tries to kill himself uh, ralph tries to kill himself and she's sort of like oh, what do you want to do that for? Just like casually. Uh, not concerned in the slightest, really. Uh, like he's not just written a suicide note, blaming her. Um, mm-hmm. And he says, you know, I love you, Peggy. I love you. And she's like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, I just, and just the opening alone, you know, really doesn't um, ingratiate you to to Peggy as a character. And... I wasn't sure, and I'm still not sure, you know, if the film wanted us to be in her perspective, because really this should be a women's picture, but it's not, because I who on earth can I identify with Peggy in this film?
0: Yeah, no, I agree. She's, she's definitely kind of uh, oblivious to a lot of things, and she is, yeah, she married this banker, broker, whoever he is. Um, just so she can get that swanky, you know, Upper East Side apartment. Um, and she doesn't seem too concerned about people knowing that, including him in a lot of ways. Like she doesn't, uh, she, she does suddenly get kind of stuffy when, um, Frederick March comes back and she's like, oh, you know, I can't, my husband can't see me fraternizing with him. Or, you know, he might suspect that I don't actually love him. Uh, is just kind of a weird moment, I think, when she like refuses to see him in the beginning. Like where like what is where did this modesty come from, Peggy? You know, it's not Um but I mean I will say Frederick March is always uh just a ray of sunshine in a comedy. He's got so much energy here and just so much um Life that I just enjoyed watching the film just for him, um, gallivanting around the apartment like he owns the place, and uh, just getting everyone's getting everybody upset with his manic uh, manic personality it was really fun.
1: Yeah, I think uh, March and Carol are actually both good in this. Like, I've only seen Nancy Carol in The Devil's Holiday, a nomination. Um, before this in which you know she plays this terrible person as well so I kind of already see her as a bit of a villain and um, if it wasn't for her there would be literally no reason to watch the first half hour mm-hmm. she was the only thing preventing me from being completely bored to tears because it takes so long to get into an actual story and this is supposed to be the best story category <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but it just took so long um but I did think one of the few highlights was that scene at the um uh where the shelter from the rain in the house Yeah. March.
0: Yeah. No, that was really funny. Um And it, it made me the whole time I'm watching it, I'm just thinking were people just more open about breaking into home unoccupied homes to get in and out of the rain and just making themselves a cup of tea and relaxing until the police showed up because <laughs> I, I'm just I'm trying to imagine coming home in that situation and finding people just in my house who were like oh yeah your window was open and it was raining so we just made ourselves uh, a little drink and what I Just say, oh, okay, it's okay, happens all the time, you can see yourselves out. Like, what... (laughs) I don't know what they expect to happen, and it seems to be a common enough trope that it almost makes me think that in the 30s and 40s people did that, or at least it was something that people would recognize as realistic. But it's still kind of of bizarre from a modern perspective.
1: But the house has a porch, right? Why didn't they just stand in the porch? (laughs) Like... (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, they they could have done that. Yeah, <laughs>
1: um, yeah that that sequence was really odd. Um, like sort of stands out compared to the rest of the film because it became a little looser and more screwball like with the romance and mm-hmm. the the whole thing just got a bit more interesting when that happened. You could see that they had a connection. There was a little chemistry there. The film suddenly came to life and ceased to be about snobby people deciding you know who they loved and who they didn't and um and the actors seem to be having fun you know for once in that moment which was nice but then it it just kind of goes back to being this same wallowing society drama um with no relatable characters really
0: yeah i have to say though based on the title and the poster i was expecting more of a screwball comedy or at least at least kind of a early, like, pre-Capra screwball comedy.
1: Um, Yeah. Or maybe some music. She's supposed to be a stage star, right?
0: Yeah, that's true, yeah. Which could have definitely been an interesting angle. Um, But yeah, like you say, it's just kind of this stuffy um, parlor comedy. Most of it takes place in the apartment, other than that sequence, Um, or in... Ralph's apartment and so there's a lot of interiors in the film um and again just very clearly sets with like 40 foot ceilings and um in the in that in uh Gibson's apartment which I mean I guess existed at the time but pretty clearly it's just because they didn't build ceilings on sets at the time uh because that's where the you know the lights and the and the microphones
1: were. I think you kind of sense that there's going to be tragedy. Um, you know, near the end, uh, Marjorie holds up the gun and is like, oh, what's this doing here? <laughs> and like, It's kind of like, well, you you wouldn't have put that in if it wasn't going to be used a couple of minutes later. Um, so you know something bad's going to happen, and, and lo and behold, it does. Right, yeah. But the denouement really lets the film down for me um, in a massive way because it sends out really extremely mixed messages where Peggy is responsible for a ruined romance and the death of her friend, which, again, she doesn't seem at all bothered by at the time, uh, that he's just shot himself in the head um and this is supposed to force her to realize that love is more important than money and to run away with paul but then the final scene in which you know she's run away with paul they're having dinner in this what looks like a bohemian cafe bar um and he tells her that he loves her and she just just doesn't respond (laughs) and um and then she kind of can't keep her eyes off the diamond bracelet that the woman on the next table's gone on. And it's so it's sort of like, Oh, so you're still not happy? Yeah. Um and I think, you know, clearly at this time, you know, I've read I've read enough books from the twenties and thirties to know that love didn't, you know, conquer all and many women wanted security, regarded that as more important than love. Um, and this is a time that you've got the Great Depression, so that maybe compounds that kind of thinking where women are being a bit more pragmatic about romance and protecting themselves financially. But when you're telling a story, and this is the best story category again, I reiterate, you need to make a valid point, and here it just feels disingenuous. They even try and make a joke of the fact that she's not sure whether she's made the right decision or not at the end, which yeah is you know really misjudged. So it, I felt like it it didn't. It would have been more interesting if it had come to the concrete point that oh, she is actually a gold digger and she's going to own that. She's going to admit that, almost like a Dodsworth situation, mm-hmm. where. Ruth Chatterton's which is a brilliant film hopefully we'll get to do it on the podcast at some point yes where you know Ruth Chatterton's character you know makes some bad decisions makes some mistakes hurts hurts somebody but comes to realise that you know it's sort of like priorities you can kind of become blinded as to what your priorities are so this film Laughter could have done that but instead it it got really muddled and for me ended up sort of bankrupting itself completely by just feeling really disingenuous and not knowing what it wanted to be ultimately.
0: Yeah, I agree. I was kind of looking for some kind of resolution like that. Um, and it's funny you bring up Doddsworth cause that's probably like the, I guess the grown-up version of what we're talking about. And that's the one where we do actually see that, um, that, story kind of making a firm stand on it, and yeah, you're right, with, with this one that just kind of waffles for a bit and ends with I think it is meant to be a joke or humorous or whatever, but it still just kind of comes across as trying to have their cake and eat it too. Um And yeah, you, the the whole thing with the the suicide at the end, and she just, and she's just like, uh, oh, oh well, and then leaves and goes and marries Frederick March or whatever. That was bizarre.
1: Um, I mean, your friend's just shot himself in the head and she's not even horrified to see half his brain supposedly, you know, spilling on the floor. Like, I don't know, you'd think somebody had fainted. You know, it wasn't like, he's dead, he's not coming back.
0: And then there was there was also that weirdly bizarre moment just before that where he's got the gun pointed at her and she's just like, oh, you know, I forget what she says, but she almost like kind of sashays out of the room like, oh, you know, you wouldn't dare or, you know, you don't have the guts or something, which was also bizarre. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, yeah, just just a weird scene and a weird moment. And, yeah, kind of lets the whole character down a bit right up to the very end of it. Yeah, very strange choices and like you say, this is a category that's supposed to be about the story and the story itself is is deeply flawed.
1: Yeah. It's um it's very of its time. Um it it just uses melodrama in the wrong way. And you know, as a story, we discuss in the story category it's poor. It's bad.
0: On to back to uh, Cagney. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, All right. Public enemy. The,
0: the public. The public enemy. Um, probably before we were starting to watch this category, this was the one film that I'd heard of before because uh, it is quite famous um, and is has quite a reputation as kind of one of the quintessential pre code films. Um, and this was the, obviously the, uh, the film that turned James Cagney into a star. Uh, and he even, he even manages to do a little tap dancing in it, uh, just to show the other side of his, uh, of his talents, which would ultimately be the side that earned him his Oscar, but that's a later story. Um, so this was probably much more overtly anti-mob compared to Doorway to Hell. uh, Would you agree? Yeah. Um, It opens with two, you know, two 'er ne'er-do-wells, and their kind of clashes with parents and siblings and girls in the neighborhood, and then they grow up to become each other. um, Because originally um, edward woods was going to play the lead and cagney was going to play his buddy but after filming the sequences of the ch- of their childhoods william wellman decided to swap their roles but he didn't reshoot the scenes in the beginning so the kid who's playing cagney as a kid looks like edward woods and vice versa so there's a bit of a <laughs> a bit of a shock when they grow up to become each other, but that's you know, that's another story.
1: <laughs> I think also the doorway to hell, um, had come out, and Cagney's role in that might have helped him, um, get the lead too. Uh but yep, yeah, it's it's very anti-mob. It's very moralistic, um, which shouldn't be a surprise given the title, which is already anti-mob in quite a provocative way. But there's even a closing statement that uh, reiterates the sense of moral panic and, you know, oh my God, our young men are being turned into reprobates and we've got to stop this. Uh, I can believe it was an actual problem because of how desperate both this movie and, to a lesser extent, Doorway the Hell seemed to be about the social situation and, and really doubling down on this is bad. Um. But when I was watching this and I do like this film, but when I was watching it, part of me did think, you know, they're not making a movie about an upper class guy who's lost all his money through investments um, in the stock exchange because maybe that's a bit too close to home. And instead they're making a movie about a working class guy doing what he has to do to survive and then blaming the state of society on this type of person instead which is you know probably i don't know if you get what i mean but it 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 just felt it feels like from watching this film it just feels like the whole idea of blaming this on everybody's war is is kind of classist a little bit um even though i like this film and it's definitely very well made it i just got that vibe from it
0: yeah no, I, I did as well, and that the the ending title card kind of was struck me as a little weird because the film doesn't didn't seem to be saying that Cagney's character was a product of society, or that society was to blame. It was just kind of here's a bad egg and he got what was coming to him in the end, and then all of a sudden the title card says you know, this is what society is producing. It's like, is that what? (laughs) And and yeah, I agree with you that it does come across as very kind of very classist and maybe a little out of sync with how people were probably feeling uh, at the time, even though, I mean, obviously it was a massive hit um, and it is very well made and that, but yeah, the moralizing uh, seems a little misplaced for the well, for any time and place, but particularly in the early, thro- in the throes of the Depression, to basically be like, yeah, it's your fault, you know, you people out there in the audience for, you know, creating this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a shame it had to, to go so far in, with that because it is very efficiently made. It's very effective. You know, it progresses forward. One thing I liked about it as well you know, it's moving forward quite quickly at the beginning, you know, it goes through World War One, Prohibition era, uh, Great Depression. And it's kind of providing a backdrop or a basic social commentary as to how these people, these mobsters are able to capitalize on the situation and, and gain all of this power in the first place which is the only film of the three crime pictures I think we're going to talk about today that provides any sort of real background in that sense. So I like that it it made the effort in that way. Um, And I don't really mind that the character is such a bad egg with no unredeeming qualities because the way that it... You know, you're sort of expecting him to... or hoping that at some point he's going to... Realize the error of his ways, or maybe take a step back and you know, kind of be self reflective at some point, it just never happens. You know, where um, he's treating Kitty really badly, um, already, and then the sequence comes where he kills Putty Nose, which I think is just brilliant. This scene, um, where he's you know, Putty Nose is. Effectively doing everything he can to delay and prevent himself from getting killed, you know, to this extent where he's singing a song that he taught them when they were kids. um, And the fact that he still, Tommy still kills him while he's singing that song and doesn't seem the least bit bothered about it is kind of the final culmination of this, you know, his transformation into a complete moral um, bankrupt without any compassion at all but it's still the way that it's done is um really original and i i, I thought that was um i thought that was excellent
0: no yeah I, I did literally like the way it was shot and filmed the way it just pans over to matt watching and you can see kind of the contrast between how it affects matt to see that compared to Yas, yeah, like you say tom just like completely unbothered by it and completely uh, ready to move on immediately. I did think that that might have set up um, a conflict later between Matt and Tom where like Tom goes too far for Matt and they kind of come into conflict although that didn't materialize, um, which was,
1: yeah,
0: I guess, may- I wouldn't say a lost opportunity necessarily, but maybe something that could have been, interesting to uh, highlight Tom's kind of moral bankruptcy and his and his degradation.
1: Yeah, it, they don't seem to have much of a relationship, do they? It, it, the only sort of clash is between Tommy and the brother. Um, it's another terrible performance, whoever played the brother. I haven't looked that up. Um, apparently, whoever it was actually hit... Cagney um, when he punched him and they wanted to make it realistic and Cagney apparently didn't mind um, you don't often see I, I, unless I've read this wrong Tommy is sexually assaulted in this film, right?
0: Yes, yes I we mean, do <laughs> need to talk about that um, <laughs> he
1: absolutely is Yeah. you don't often see that now never mind back then, right? yeah um not not men assaulted by women anywhere,
0: but yeah, it's that's it's kind of brushed off pretty quickly, but yeah, um that absolutely happens. and that's not explored much because it's obviously not presented as that. It's more presented as you know, she got him drunk and had her way with him, which she did, but it's not framed as a sexual assault. It's more framed as him being like, oh, oh I'm not going to get drunk around you again, huh? And he's gone, um, which
1: is... He a- does seem a bit upset, though.
0: He does, I mean, he definitely seems upset, but more... He, he seems more upset by the fact that he has a partner than... Like, he, he, he seems like more upset than he would have been if he hadn't already been attached or if it was a, a girl that he liked, you know, because he he obviously just doesn't think much of her. If that if that makes sense, so
1: so you think it was he would have been fine if it was Gwen,
0: <laughs> I guess fine finer, I guess. Um, but I I do agree that he definitely seems very upset by it. Um, but then of course uh, the next the next moment. The next beat is uh, Matt getting killed and him taking revenge, so he doesn't really have much time to to ruminate on what happened.
1: Yeah, that just was a really unexpected turn of events, <laughs> and you know it's something really interesting. Um, there's a lot been said about Jean Harlow um, and her magnetism, and you know died at twenty six and. Like a lot of famous people who died young, she's become a bit of an icon. I'd be interested to see her in, you know, other films. Apparently she's good in Susie. and um, Towards the end of her career, maybe, you know, in which she might get more to do. I have to say, I thought she was terrible in this. Um, playing a character that... I don't even know if the screenwriters even knew what function this character was supposed to serve because she kind of comes in and then goes and they don't really have a relationship. So it, it kind of feels as if maybe there are more scenes cut out and they wanted to get this down to 90 minutes, which is kind of what the, they didn't really like making films longer than 90 minutes in this kind of genre this time. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I, I it, it just feels a little bit compromised as a result of why if you got this woman in the film if she's not going to really serve a purpose
0: yeah I agree I mean she doesn't even come in until quite late anyway um, kind of following the, the infamous grapefruit scene and then he picks her up on the street
1: um, <laughs> oh we've got to talk about the grapefruit scene
0: <laughs> yeah uh, I'd heard of this scene and, like, I'd seen stills of this scene um, long before I ever watched the movie. Um, and, yeah, he just... Uh, it's its kind of muted compared to how I'd guess I'd built it up in my head. Um, you know, she's just saying things over breakfast. He gets annoyed. He picks up the grapefruit and just kind of shoves it in her face and fade away. Um,
1: you know what? In some ways, it's worse than a slap.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if some of that gets in your eye, that grapefruit juice—that's that's gonna sting.
1: <laughs> I don't mind grapefruit. Actually, I quite like it. Um, but... I
0: don't. I don't. I don't think I've ever actually had one. Um, it seems to be a, a trope of a kind of upper class breakfast to have a half a grapefruit in front of you. But I've—I I've literally, I think I can say I've never eaten a, or tried a grapefruit in my life.
1: They're nice. They're bitter, but but they're nice. Mm. Um, but yeah, I read that because um, it's Kitty, uh, May Clark plays Kitty. I read that her husband used to go to the cinema to watch this film again and again and just leave after the grapefruit scene because he thought it was so hysterical. <laughs> Maybe some pas- passive aggression going on there and he actually wanted to do that to her. In real life, but never got the chance.
0: Maybe. Yeah. Well, didn't William Wellman say that it rose out of his own desire to do that to his own wife? Which is (laughs) a little troubling. Um, But apparently he would, like... Apparently he would, like, fantasize about it. um, When they were fighting. That's, like, a weirdly specific thing to fantasize about. But apparently then he he decided to put it in the film to, like act it out in real life to kind of get it out of his system um again, not the most you know, not the most unproblematic of origins for a scene but still, uh I guess it's good that he didn't do it to his own wife
1: good for his marriage, I assume yeah Uh, wanted to mention, I thought the ending was really good where he opens the door and the body falls out of it I just thought that was kind of brutal um but not that i in any way was sorry he was dead but it's kind of the impact on the family and the kind of the finality of it all just quite hit home quite hard
0: no definitely i was a little i thought it was a bit weird that uh tom kind of disappears from the film for the last 5 or 6 minutes and it's all just his his kidnapping from the hospital and all that kind of happens off camera uh just like the 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 policeman shows up and says, oh, he's been kidnapped, but don't worry, we're on the case. And then two minutes later, you know, his dead body shows up. We don't even get to see what happened to him or his last hours alive. He just disappears from the hospital and then turns up dead on the door. That was a a strange uh, choice. But yeah, it was quite a brutal ending. And it's shot that kind of low angle when the body just like smashes on the ground is... Uh, a pretty well-framed uh, final shot.
1: Yeah, I. Um, as a story, I thought it was uh, pretty good. I enjoyed the film overall.
0: Yeah, same. I think it's paced quite well, and it's good kind of, you know, rags-to-riches-to-death kind of story. As a, as a cautionary tale, as we were saying, it goes a bit over-the-top with The Moral Panic, but um, it's structured well to show uh Tom and Matt's kind of rise in the gangster world and ultimately their their undoing but the uh the Cagney trilogy goes on with Smart Money um again sees Cagney in a supporting role uh this time opposite Edward G Robinson they're uh the only film they made together uh despite being kind of giants of the genre throughout the 30s um and this one is about a small town barber who's good at gambling, who becomes a underworld kingpin, uh, which I, <laughs> I guess was a thing that happened. Um, <laughs> this is a this film also leans heavily on the newspaper headlines to advance the plot trope, um, yes. and it. It makes me wonder how much newspaper headlines devoted to the antics of petty criminals and gangsters at the time. Like, they seem to be, the newspapers in this film seem to be covering uh, Nick, the titular, uh, not titular, but the, the, um, the lead character. They seem to be covering him almost like a society uh, persona rather than a criminal, Um, and like tracking his movements and saying who he's just, you know, he just beat, uh, so-and-so for an exceptional amount of money and now look how much money he has and now the cops are after him and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I thought these guys kind of kept a low profile, but apparently no, apparently they're in the society pages every time they make a move.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, this is a vehicle for Edward G. Robinson, clearly, um he'd done Little Caesar, which came out a couple of months before, and um, this is kind of a pale imitation, As a story, it's not particularly good, like I, I agree, it's, it is very much, why should we care about this person, um, it's very one-track and linear, and I think it's a bit of a shame that the writers couldn't find room for any real subplots or any agency for the supporting characters. For instance, uh, Jimmy Cagney plays Nick's brother, Jack. He's got no personality. We don't know what he does. We don't know what he's thinking. Um, We don't know anything about him. He doesn't impact the story in any way. Only when he dies, which is... I get a problem, but um I think Edward G. Robinson must be in every scene and yet Nick isn't a particularly compelling character, it isn't Robertson's finest piece of acting, it's okay, but it's just run of the mill for him. Uh it's just very B movieish, you know, even for this era it feels B movieish, um, from start to finish, so well, disappointing, really.
0: Yeah. Agreed, um, and yeah, just like, just like some of the other movies we watched, it kind of it's it really elongates some sequences and then skips over ones that you would expect them to devote a little more time to. Like the whole first half of the film is him trying to find this legendary gambler, um, like Hickory Short. And he goes through, you know, he he goes and he loses his money to the fake one, and then he gets his revenge, and he starts building his nest egg. And then it just cuts to one of those stupid newspaper headlines and says, yep, he beat him. You know, Nick beat, you know, (laughs) Nick beat Hickory Short to $300,000. It's like, we we don't even get to see the guy. You were just building him up for 45 minutes, and it's just like, yep. yeah, he beat him, he got 300 grand, and now he's... Yeah, now he's got a mansion and he runs these massive parties and he's a, you know, ruler of the illegal gambling trade. Just,
1: really weird. Well, where was the poker? Where, like, where was it? Like, there are a few scenes of him with the gamblers, but they're just talking. Mm-hmm. There's never actually any hands dealt. um We never see, I mean, I think we see one spin of a roulette wheel at the beginning. It's just, you know, you'd think that maybe they could have worked the gambling or the actual act of the gambling um, into the story a bit more, into the narrative to provide a bit of tension or interest, um, whereas it it never really got there.
0: Yeah, it does seem a bit half-baked and maybe a bit, yeah, like you say, rushed. To production to capitalize on Robinson's like stardom after Little Caesar, um, and also maybe to again you know Cagney was a young up and comer uh, at this point so kind of like getting him in with the big uh, with the big star of this type of picture would help us, give you know boost his career a bit, um, and I don't know if this film, I mean obviously it was made before the Public Enemy I don't know if the release was uh close but yeah they both would have come out in the same year i think so
1: yeah i thought cagney's character's death was very contrived the district attorney is trying to convince irene to double cross nick and says you know he's going to be out in a month and when he was doing that i was thinking you know something's going to happen to put him away longer like he's going to end up shooting a police officer or something um but, you know, it it kind of felt like the film was going to have that where Nick was going to have to undergo a complete downfall to hammer home the point that gambling is such a black mark morally, um, which is a little, maybe a little surprising for pre-code, but not completely given it that, you know, this is nearly 100 years old. But I must say that it was a welcome break from the other gangster films in one sense, in that it wasn't preachy and moralistic. Um, Like the ending of this film is him going to prison for manslaughter. And then the guy from the the press office is um, asking him what he's going to do with his 10 years in prison. And he's like, Oh, I'll be out in five. He just doesn't seem the least bit bothered about it, you know, and he looks as glamorous as he has in the whole movie. Um, so it's def it's definitely not going for the hard-edge realism that the other two gangster films are going for. Um, and it's not saying, you know, oh, he, he's on the wrong side of the law and he's going to suffer. It kind of is saying that in a way, but then it's also saying, oh, but look at him, the cheeky little tinker. He's, <laughs> he's still giving it the bravado and he's going to come out of prison and more than likely continue where he left off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, definitely. So it's it's kind of a more fun take on the on the mobster world than Public Enemy. Um, I do agree that Jack's death was kind of bizarre. I mean, I I think I got it right that it looks like he fell and like impaled his head on maybe a sticky out bit of furniture or something, but.
1: Maybe like the skirting board or something, or, or like a doorstop?
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It seemed like they lifted him up, and there was like a tiny little thing that looked like maybe, yeah, he fell and 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 impaled his head on it kind of like, you know, um, uh, Midnight Express style, but <laughs> it, it was still kind of out of the blue and bizarre, and it was like, not really necessary, you know? Cause it's not like, cause then, you know, then basically, uh, Nick, when you sit, like you say, he's going off to jail all jaunty and happy and it could just as easily have been like James Cagney right there with him. They've reconciled and they're like, Hey, yeah, I'll see you in five years, buddy. That's kind of the energy that he has. So it's kind of weird that, you know, Jack was dead for no apparent reason,
1: uh, just before that. Yeah, it just happens really casually, and it, it just feels like it's just another plot point um, that's been hastily conceived. Um, one thing I did like about the film, and I don't think this is a very good um, story overall, but the the scene where the woman visits Nick, uh, who's been this woman's been sent by the district attorney to incriminate him. And he, you know, he susses her out. He kicks her out on her ear. But, but then, <laughs> when she's on the floor, like, <laughs> is it is it Jack? Or is it somebody else? Outside the room. <laughs> helps her up and she just slaps him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was howling. That was so funny. Just comedic gold. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that was... Uh that was pretty amazing. And uh interesting, that was um, the actress was Margaret Livingston, who's uh, better known, I think among film aficionados anyway, as the woman in uh, Sunrise, um, the, the first and only winner of the uh, unique and artistic production Oscar a few years before.
1: I have to say that, you know, there is this recurring joke that Nick loves a blonde and that's his weakness. Um, but, you know, one thing that struck me is that all the women in this movie all look very similar. Uh, there are, are like four female characters and the first three have all got the exact same blonde hairstyle. And you have to wonder, like, how men didn't confuse them all the time if they all look like this. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, how do you know which women you've taken out and which haven't, which you haven't? Um, you know, and how do you not get the names mixed up? It it's that it's almost like everybody's going for the same look and they're like clones of each other in this. It, it's all really confusing. Um, yeah. But I thought the best actress in it was Evelyn Knapp, um, who played Irene. That definitely the most convincing, anyway. And that kind of dilemma of you know he saved me, but am I gonna? Work with the police to incriminate him. That I thought she played that pretty well.
0: Yeah, definitely. She was a that was a good character, and their kind of final confrontation was also I think kind of a. She played it very realistically and very well. So yeah, overall good acting in it. Um, again, James Cagney doesn't have a whole lot to work with as Jack. Uh, certainly not compared to uh, the other movies, but he does well.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's he's fine. But we must leave Cockney now.
0: Yeah, it's true, because uh, all those four films we just talked about, Lost. Uh, The winner was The Dawn Patrol, um, written by, well, so many people, but uh, based on the story, so the Oscar winner was John Monk Saunders, who wrote... uh, a story or a book or something called The Flight Commander, uh, which uh, earned him the Oscar.
1: Yes. Um, although I think maybe we should start with the fact that there are some legal issues with the film. Um, first national pictures were taken over by Warner Brothers. And in the middle of the production, the, the studio was sued by Howard Hughes, who at the time, was making a similar movie called Hell's Angels, which is a, another famous movie, um, and sort of alleged that this was a plagiarization of his film, um, and that kind of forced them to, to rush release the Dawn Patrol and um, ahead of the release of Hell's Angels. Um, but I think they later ruled that it wasn't a copy, didn't copy anything from that film, and... Um, and also, there was a dispute between Howard Hawks and John Monk Saunders, and, and Hawks has suggested that the idea for the story was his own, um, as far as I could tell. There isn't a whole lot online about it, but there's definitely um, a rift between them due to the, the, the story credit.
0: Well, um, I mean, there is something to Hawks's interpretation, because he was an aviator in the war, um, he did train uh, he did train young recruits and he was a lieutenant uh, during the war. So it does kind of lend a degree of verisimilitude to his, to the idea that he could have come up with it because the movie is very much from the point of view of like the old veterans trying to protect the the new recruits and kind of failing. so. I could I could definitely see that I can see um, I'm not sure what the final yeah I, I haven't been able to find out what the final kind of uh, decision on that was legally speaking
1: but I mean I think the film is very good uh, it's kind of it is a bit indicative of, of works at the time you know about the military at uh, journey's end does the play from 1928 um called journey's end which is not dissimilar where it's a group of army soldiers and it's set in the trenches and it's very much this chamber drama um of sorts and it's all about what they're having to go through with in their regiments you know mentally more than physically and i think you know the military often tends to be glamorized among Certainly among the upper classes, but overall, you know, recruitment drives tend to be aimed at poorer men and, you know, amping up the prestige of going to fight for your country and uh, medals, etc., etc. But this, this movie, you know, and others like it, I think following on from the Great War where all these young guys died horrible deaths and everything this film's in this script is clearly rallying against that impression, that prestigious impression of war and the military and makes its point in a really harrowing way. And I think um, it's incredibly well done.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I really quite an, um, thought it was quite a gripping story. And while it's maybe not, as kind of overtly anti-war as, say, All Quiet on the Western Front, it still definitely takes a very cynical view of um, of what these men are going through. It doesn't have a great deal of patriotic feeling to it. It's more just camaraderie more than anything else, like being stuck together in this uh, bad situation. Honestly, it's it. I, I feel like the doorway to hell would be a better title for this film than than the film that it was actually on because this is, they're literally at the doorstep and they fly into hell every day um, and the film doesn't, like it doesn't offer much in the way of um, cheeriness, like there's you know um, Scott's brother shows up and is killed the next day um, there's every mission that goes up comes back with fewer than left. And it's just, it doesn't offer anything in the way of, oh, it's not always like this. It's very much downbeat from start to finish and saying, no, it's always horrible. And the the people who have to stay and wait to see how many of their friends come back, it's, yeah, it's pretty harrowing, actually, I, I have to say. Um, and the the aerial flight sequences are quite well shot.
1: Yeah, which you would expect, um, given Hawks' as, um, mm-hmm. experience. And I think he he flew some of the German planes in the, in the footage, that are supposed to be the German planes. Um, yeah, it's bleak, um, and Hawks, Hawks does capture that despair, the monotony of wartime, the casual way they have to remove the names of the pilots who've died. Every night from the chalkboard, uh, which is just must be like so demoralizing. Um, there's that. There's just this great sense of here we go again, and will this ever end? And um, and it's a film that gets across the realism of war and the vicious circle within it. You know, when uh, Courtney has to take over Brand's role, he assumes exactly the same position. And he's just basically a helpless person that's just a facilitator of information, really, from his superiors, Uh, unable to have a vocal opinion, unable to object to things. And you can see the soul being sucked out of him gradually in the same way that Brands was. Uh, And then at the end, Scott takes over, right? Um, And it's sort of, you know, it's about just reinforcing the endless nature of of war and that everyone's dispensable and replaceable and and it isn't particularly patriotic it isn't um that propagandist i mean although um courtney is successful he dies it's not celebrated in the film particularly uh so yeah that the film could have taken opportunities to be more rah-rah, you know, the good guys will win eventually, but it, it just kept doubling down on on the despair.
0: And yeah, it's not like, you know, he destroyed that, um, that rail depot and then the next day we see a newspaper headline saying, you know, the Allies score a huge victory because the uh, German trains couldn't pass. There's nothing like that. It just moves on takes his name off the wall and another mission um so yeah there's no sense that this was a particularly vital mission that he died for and again what we're talking about kind of doubling down on the lack of patriotism and the lack of uh kind of um, glamorization and if anything yeah it was seemed to imply that the german and american fighters were pretty close to each other and like we're we're actually uh shared a pretty serious camaraderie more so than the american fighters would have felt for for example the brass who are sending them on these missions because then you get you know you get the german pilot who shot him down kind of returning his personal effects with a note um And even before that, when Courtney is, you know, in his plane, literally, it looks like, it was kind of a squeamish sequence there, because it looks like he's, like, burning alive in this wreck. He takes the moment to lock eyes with the German pilot who shot him down and give him a little salute. Uh, And the German pilot returns it before Courtney dies. It's really, yeah, so it's an interesting kind of, depiction of these guys as closer like I said closer to the Germans they're fighting than to their own side in a lot of ways because they're they're all in the same boat they're all flying these dangerous missions where the majority of them die and they're all living on borrowed time and they kind of have that uh, closeness because of that
1: yeah I did wonder if that would have been accurate um, but I think one thing that's one thing they definitely wouldn't have got away with if the code had been in place. Um No, but it, it does get across how all soldiers are essentially in the same boat. And the reason they're fighting is, you know, for things out of their control. Um, Cause obviously you see, I mean, when we talked about Mrs. Miniver, you've got the, the portrayal. They can't, they're not, they can't portray Germans as positive. Um once the code had been in place, and certainly not once World War II had begun and it all became, you know, very propagandist. Um, So this is kind of on the same level as All Quiet on the Western Front in in being sort of a bit ambivalent and uh, portraying war um, in a negative sense. I thought... The acting was pretty strong across the board. I thought Barthelmess did very well. The supporting performances are generally not too overblown. Um, I thought it could have been a, a little bit shorter, maybe. Um, in the first half hour, there's a fair amount of repetition in the bar scenes near the beginning. sort of belabour the same point over and over again, which I think it's trying to establish this monotony, but it, it does seem a little... I thought it could have been a little tighter, but the acting um, overall I thought was really good, and it was just very convincing. You know, um, a really solid story um, that knew what it wanted to say and said it well.
0: As a story and as a depiction of war, I think it's one of the best uh, that I've seen of the era, Um, and definitely the like you say, the kind of thing that probably wouldn't have flown shoot, that was completely unintentional, Um, (laughs) but probably the kind of thing that that wouldn't have been acceptable um, once the code came along, so I'm glad they... uh, I would be interested to see the remake, which was made only a few years later in 1938 with Errol Flynn um, and and see how they... see what the take is on it then, which of course would have been at a much... a time when you know, it was becoming clear that there was going to be probably another war in Europe by 1938. So what would the sentiment have been at that point?
1: Yeah, that's a good point, yeah.
0: But yeah, we do have a few questions from David uh, on this one. So the first one, why do you think so many of these have been forgotten? Do you think it's a lack of availability in the case of most? Um, I don't know uh they are all available if people want to find them um they are available if you know where to look um because these all of course uh are probably public domain at this point um and why they've been forgotten i don't know a lot of films from this era uh are forgotten in some cases justly but um and as we talked about at the beginning the the overall quality of these is not what we'd call tip top, is it? Um, with a few exceptions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think most of them are rightly forgotten, honestly. Um, because they're not very good. Mm-hmm. I think people tend to remember the Errol Flynn remake of the Dawn Patrol more probably because the sound and picture quality had gotten a lot better by then as well. Right. You know, Right. That's another reason why this group are kind of forgotten, because they can be difficult to watch because of the quality, the production value is the sound recording, etc. Not quite there at this point. Um, I would say the only one that's really properly remembered is the public enemy. Uh, probably because of Cagney's popularity and the reverence some people have for, for the genre.
0: Well, uh, sorry, David, but your next question, if you've seen it, what do you think of the 1938 remake? Um, uh, haven't seen it. So, um, we'll see it soon, uh, for reasons outlined a minute or two ago, but at the moment, unfortunately, uh, haven't seen it.
1: I also have not seen it, but I'm kind of glad I haven't seen it. I'm glad that I watched this one first. Oh. hmm But yeah, maybe one day.
0: And then his final question, uh, how sexy is Douglas Fairbanks Jr.? Answer, very. Um, that's David's answer, he... That's what he wrote. Um but <laughs> uh but yeah, yeah, he, he does have that kinda, um, tousled kind of um kind of bowie thinness, uh, the in this picture, uh and in a lot of his pictures from this era. Yeah, he does it for me.
1: Who did he play in this?
0: Uh he played uh, Scott or Douglas Doug Scott or whatever, uh Courtney's friend, who he uh who he takes over the mission from in the end,
1: all oh, right, yeah, 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 um, yeah, I guess so, um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not on Errol Flynn's level, but yeah, certainly, certainly not bad, less likely to catch venereal disease from from Douglas, most likely,
0: I mean that does uh, that is sexy to me, not catching a disease so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um. Thank you for the questions, David. Um, Snubs, what what do we think? It's difficult to assess what was eligible for this category based on what the nominees were.
0: Yeah, I mean, I really don't know because it seems like a lot of them were adaptations, but some of them were, and so the, the people who wrote the original story that it was based on like, Rowland Brown wrote the story that Doorway to Hell was based on, so the script was an adaptation of his original story, but if, if that's the case... And indeed, we did kind of see that. We have we did see it in other years. I think Life of Emil Zola, for example, won both original story and best adaptation uh, because of the weird separation.
1: I have a feeling that we can discount whatever was nominated in the screenplay category that yeah. wasn't going to get in this this lineup. Because I was thinking Holiday, but Holiday got in to the screenplay category. Um, maybe Min and Bill?
0: Yeah, yeah. Min and Bill could have could have been in there. Um, possibly, possibly the front page. Um, if we're looking at the... Uh, the kind of above the line categories. The front page, I think, was by a long way, and it didn't wasn't exactly jumping over a high bar, but by quite a long way, the best of the best picture nominees, um, and kind of an early collaboration between Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. So could have been could have been in there. I think that had a good story to it.
1: Yeah, I, there was a Capra film in this year called Ladies of Leisure. Um Okay. So maybe potentially that. Um uh, Morocco, that's a film that got best actress nomination, Von Sternberg.
0: Yep. And director for Von Sternberg as well, didn't it?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that could've been some. I actually haven't seen that one, but yeah, that's got enough uh enough nominations that it could have gotten in. I guess we've already done wider observations on this a while back, but uh, wider observations on 1931?
1: Well, Cimarron won Best Picture. Um, Got to be one of the most underwhelming Best Picture winners ever. And Yep. Three wins from seven nominations. There were only eight categories and it managed seven nominations. Uh, so obviously well-liked. Do we think that Jackie Cooper's record will be Broken ever?
0: Uh I kinda doubt it. I mean, given given our previous discussions about how Hollywood these days of the Academy these days seems loath to nominate children in the lead categories, especially not um that young. I mean, obviously we did have uh A Wallace uh nominated at the age of nine um, for best actress. A few years ago, ten—well, no, I guess you know, ten years ago. But it's a pretty rare—that's a pretty rare occurrence. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, his record's probably safe. Um, and of course, the the very cute story that he fell asleep <laughs> on Mari Dresler's shoulder, uh, and then when Dresler won, she had to like ease him off while he was napping. That's pretty funny. <laughs> And then yeah, we also have um, uh, J- Lionel Barrymore, um, who won Best Actor. I don't know if I mentioned this the last time we did the category, the year, but he was the first person to get nominated at the Oscars in separate categories, uh, because he'd been he'd been nominated for director at the second Academy Awards, and here he won um, Best Actor, so setting a, a milestone early in the history of the Oscars.
1: Yeah, and it's a very overcooked performance. Um, yeah. Not a huge fan of that one. No.
0: And Frederick March getting his first nomination, too, for The Royal Family of Broadway, which is another kind of a pre-code, screwball-ish comedy or comedy of manners or family drama kind of stuff. I actually have pretty fond memories of that movie.
1: Uh, yeah, I've heard really good things about that one.
0: yeah. He's he's really funny in it. Um, I think it's uh, it's cool that he got a nomination for it. But so um, we come to the immortal question: Why did the Dawn Patrol win the Oscar? And uh, was it close? And I find it very difficult to answer the "Was it close?" question when we get into the very very early years of the Oscars because I don't think anybody had any idea what they were doing, and uh, there wasn't like the Oscars didn't have the kind of prestige that they did in later years so there wasn't the kind of concerted effort uh to get nominated or to win at the time uh so it's it's hard to kind of say what the determining factors were or what the what the um factors were that were influencing the voters
1: yeah it's it that's very difficult to call i mean i think the dawn patrol probably had the most prestige in terms of the topic um it's a global topic that there will have been Academy voters who had served in the military and, and might have related to it. Um, And it's the best. I mean, (laughs) we know the best movie doesn't often win, um, but I think in this case, it's fairly obvious. Um, But yeah, it, I think overall, it's just, I think the gangster film's, to some extent you know maybe cancel each other out a little bit you know is is one of them that you know the cream of the crop maybe but i don't know i, I think it's um this one had a more academy friendly topic than the others
0: so uh sh- shall we rank them
1: let's yeah i've already spoiled mine but i mean <laughs> if it wasn't if it wasn't obvious but
0: yeah yeah i don't think anybody's shocked uh but all right this was your pick so why don't you uh why don't you start us off
1: okay well at number five i've got laughter i thought it ruined itself to such a degree I had a terribly uh hateful lead female character at the center of it that i just couldn't get on board with um a couple of dodgy supporting performances Melodrama that felt like it was invented on the spot. Um, just amateurish stuff, basically. Four, I've Got Smart Money. I thought it was very watchable, but didn't have a lot going for it. The supporting characters got nothing whatsoever to do. Um, repetitious scenes uh, didn't make good use of the gambling aspect of it at all. Felt limited. Uh, three, I've got Doorway to Hell. Even though I didn't like the lead performance, I thought that the film had more going for it than it had a right to. Some interesting family drama there. Um, it was a sort of bold call to make the film about a gangster who wants to reform himself and being sort of lured back into it to his detriment. Uh, two, I've Got the Public Enemy. That was really, really well-directed, probably, you know, definitely well-directed from Wellman. Um, and Cagney was good. Um, and, it, you know, despite the moralism, it, you know, it was very effective um, at telling the, the kind of gangster story it, it told. And, yeah. I I kept you know thinking about it after it had finished, and also the grapefruit scene, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, number one by an absolute mile. The dawn patrol just really um the most hard hitting, without being the most sensationalist, and just quietly somber drama, moody drama that kept kept taking over, and some really good supporting performances. A true ensemble piece. Um, and made its anti-war point in a in a really excellent way.
0: Oh, um, pretty close. Um, I also have laughter at number five. Um, I almost ranked it a bit higher because I did find myself enjoying it at points. Um, particularly like I said, Frederick March is uh always entertaining to me. But yeah, the ending of it was just too kind of mean-spirited and muddled. And even though I think, like I said, the final shot is supposed to be a cute little joke, it just doesn't land because, as you say, this uh, character is just so kind of vile uh, throughout the film. Number four, I have The Doorway to Hell. Uh, Again, basically ranking it pretty down low because the whole thing just kind of didn't hang together for me enough, and I was distracted a bit by Luair's performance in the lead. And just talking about the story, I think that that particular story of the gangster who wants to get out but gets pulled back in um, is kind of told better in other films. Um, And I don't know if this one was like an early progenitor of that kind of archetype, but even so, it just didn't quite do it for me. I've got Smart Money at number three because again, it was entertaining, contrived nature of it aside and annoying newspaper break-ins aside. Um, I did find myself enjoying Edward G. Robinson's performance and the kind of, I liked the kind of devil may care approach to the gangster genre. Maybe it's because he wasn't a gangster at the beginning of the film. Like I said, it's just a random barber who's good at cards. Um, Number two, uh, The Public Enemy. Yeah, solid story, despite the heavy-handedness and the kind of mixed message and kind of, I would say, tone-deaf moralizing of the end. Um, w- William Wellman's a great director, uh, and I think he does really well here. And, of course, yeah, he, he, uh, he did not smash a grapefruit into his own wife's face. He just made, a, made it into an iconic scene. So I guess that's, again, a, a victory of sorts. But yeah, um, never a doubt in my mind, the Dawn Patrol uh, was my number one, is my number one. It's a great, almost companion piece, I guess, to All Quiet on the Western Front, um, and I liked the message of it was poignant and hard-hitting without being uh, overwhelming or, or sensationalist or moralistic, uh, so yeah, a great story whoever came up with it um uh, and a great film and i am interested to see the remake now so that'll be on the watch list
1: good so pretty similar um but anyone who hasn't seen the dawn patrol highly recommend
0: definitely yep yeah. um I have a feeling that when i next time i'm home and i'm watching movies with my sister who also loves classic films i think i'll uh i think i'll sneak that in We have a website. It's CategoricallyOscars.com. We are on Twitter at CategoricallyO. As always, uh, leave us a review if you like this uh, episode or if you have any pointers for us, uh, which we will happily ignore. Um, Next week, we have on the guest list our frequent collaborator and special guest Fritz, uh, who's coming back to discuss the best supporting actor nominees of 2005 i emphasize supporting because in the in our pre-recording uh conversation callum helpfully pointed out to me that we are discussing the supporting actor lineup um which is very helpful because otherwise i would have spent the next two weeks watching the best actor nominees and been completely unprepared for the discussion so uh thank goodness Anyway, uh, the supporting actor nominees that we'll be discussing were Matt Dillon in Crash, Paul Giamatti in Cinderella Man, Jake Gyllenhaal in Brokeback Mountain, William Hurt in A History of Violence, and the winner, George Clooney, in Syriana. Uh, excited about this uh, lineup?
1: Yes, and we finally get to talk about the Brokeback versus Crash um, controversy. Um... Yeah, it should be fun. And, um, yeah, sadly, no Hustle and Flow nominated here, so we can't end on It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp.
0: Shame. But, yeah, I have not seen the winner in this category, so um, and I haven't seen these films in, uh, well, over a decade, so should be an interesting revisit.
1: Yeah, and it is worth mentioning, because we've done the other three acting categories with Fritz, um, that we did try and pick a supporting actor lineup that was pretty dishy <laughs> so <laughs> there may be there may be more reference to that next week um yeah
0: <laughs> well join us uh join us for that uh, see you next time